welcome to Refocus, a podcast that helps you find your focus to build a thriving creative career in the music industry. I'm your host, Rosalind Dennett. Hello and welcome to Refocus. Our guest today is Kaya Cater. Kaya Cater is a Juno Award nominated and Polaris Prize long-listed songwriter of Grenadian Canadian heritage. Her voice and deft songcraft have garnered acclaim from CBC, BBC Music, and Rolling Stone. Her recent film work has included original music for the CBC BET Plus Emmy-nominated series The Porter, as well as a song placed on global TV's Mary Kills People. Kaya has toured internationally, including notable performances at NPR's Tiny Desk Concerts and Carnegie Hall. In 2021, Kaya took part in the Slate Music Residency at the Canadian Film Centre and released a new single, Parallels. She's currently working on a full-length album for release in 2023. Welcome, Kaya. Hi, Rosalind. Happy to be here. I'm so glad you're here, and I've been really looking forward to chatting with you. I got to see you fairly recently at the old Folk Alliance International Conference, and it's always a delight and pleasure to get to catch up with you. How are you doing today? I'm really good. It's a very beautiful day in New York City, where I live, and I'm talking to you, so like, couldn't be better. When I first met you, it was way, way back in the day in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Can you give us a little bit of a background of what your journey was like? And you're a young person with a long career. (laughs) So take us back to those Winnipeg days or before. Yeah, for sure. So born and raised partially in Montreal. My mom always worked in arts admin or some form of like music admin festivals. She used to work for the National Arts Center. So often we'd move for her jobs. We were in Ottawa at one point. I was in high school, early high school, and uh, she was running the Ottawa Folk Festival. And then she got a job as the executive director of the Winnipeg Folk Festival. So we moved in December. No. Yes, in December. This was like early 2009, I think. And so we moved and I started high school, like second semester at a brand new school, which is, you know, and I was like maybe 15 and really terrified. (laughs) Were you playing music at that point? Had you started playing? I was, yeah. So I'd started playing, I was playing the cello for a long time, classical music, and then playing guitar on the side. And I had taken up the banjo and a guy named Mitch Podolik, who was actually the founder of the Winnipeg Folk Festival and a big presence in the Winnipeg music scene. He basically encouraged me to play clawhammer banjo. His whole thing was that he taught people how to play clawhammer banjo and also cooked great barbecue. Like those were his two <laughs> goals in life. And so he got me young. He's Leonard Podolik's dad, if, if anyone knows the ducks. And so, yeah, so, you know, Mitch had been consulting on the Ottawa Folk Festival stuff. So he would fly to Ontario and give me lessons and stuff like that. And then it was really fortuitous because when we moved to Winnipeg, we were in Mitch's town. And so he set me up with lessons from a guy named Daniel Kulak, yes, who is a treasure of a human and just an incredible banjo player and bass player. So I sort of like moved to Winnipeg and then all of these like really cool connections, including with you, Rosalind, were kind of burgeoning. And I also met Alison DeGroote, 
who's like an incredible banjo player too, who played in a band with you called Oh My Darling. So many connections. Oh my gosh. I feel like, you know, Mitch, along with Estelle Klein, really like created this whole model of what we consider the Canadian folk festival. And Mitch was such a huge, huge influence on so much of the Canadian folk landscape. It's so cool that you got to meet him even before coming out to Winnipeg and establish that connection. And he has such a deep knowledge of, you know, specifically Clawhammer <laughs> banjo styles. I remember going to visit him at the Homeroots office and he just kind of sets up shop there and leans back. Just imagine probably just playing banjo all day. (laughs) You go in to have like a meeting about something or other, and it's mostly just looking at YouTube videos of cool (laughs) banjoists he's into at that moment. And also, yeah, Danny Kulak, legend in his own right. Incredible, incredible musician and human. Allison also, yeah, A-plus people coming out of that Winnipeg, you know? And that was a really cool time to be in Winnipeg because your band, your string band, Oh My Darling, was sort of forming and starting to tour, I think at that point, already touring. And also Taylor Ashton, who's a great Clawhammer player and incredible songwriter. Taylor Ashton was hanging out in Winnipeg. That's right. At that point. And he had a band called Fish and Bird. And I don't know. I just, I feel like they were, there was this group of young people who were like five to 10 years older than me, who I just like loved. I loved hanging out with all of you. It was really fun and like so inspiring. Yeah, we'll have to do just a whole other podcast on the Winnipeg Clawhammer Renaissance of 2009 or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So then from Winnipeg, where did you go from there? So I graduated high school and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was really stumped. And so I decided to go back to Montreal where my aunt was living and just take a gap year and work. So I waitressed for a year, you know, continuously through my teenage years, I'd been going down to the States to go to these week-long old-time camps, they call them, or where they usually take place on a college campus, but it's empty during the summer. So you can go down and they fly in some teachers and you just like take classes for a week. And then, uh, you know, at night there's square dances or jams. And so it's this way of like learning old-time music in a really concentrated format. And Mitch, again, was the one who encouraged me to go and he encouraged my mom to send me down. And so we had a garage sale actually once to raise the funds for me to go to this camp called the Swananoa Gathering. And then another time I had like a benefit concert. So I was constantly raising money to like fly down to the States and study with these teachers. And while I was waitressing in Montreal, I decided to apply for a scholarship to go to the Augusta Heritage Center camp that's in Elkins, West Virginia at Davis and Elkins College. And so I sent in this little EP that I had made and I was like, well, I'll like mail it to them or send it to them and then they can hear like what I've been doing and where my playing level is at. And it turned out that Davis and Elkins College had been looking for musicians who played string band music specifically to come down to the college and form a string band called the Davis and Elkins String Band and tour the string band around West Virginia, which is where the school is located, as a way to share the culture of Appalachia and also maybe encourage other Appalachian students and kids to come study there. And so I had no idea that this plan was in motion, but I just randomly sent my CD. And so they were like, okay, we found our banjo player. Like we found the person that we want to ask to come study here and be part of this thing that we're building. And so they got in touch with me and 
they said, you know, we'd love to talk about offering you a scholarship. I don't know if you're in school. It seems like you're not. Why don't you come down May long weekend and just check it out? Just check out the campus. And so I went down with my mom and my aunt and my grandma. And yeah, they just gave me this scholarship proposal that was really amazing and would have made it sort of like an equal price for me to go to a Canadian school versus an American school that are, you know, private American colleges are stupid expensive. (laughs) And so I was like, yeah, let's do it. And so by 2012, I was in my freshman year in this tiny town, Elkins, West Virginia, kind of like on scholarship and just curious about learning more about old time music. And when you submitted that EP, was this your material? Like, were you songwriting at that point? I was, but I was quite shy about it. So if someone asked me if I was a songwriter, I'd say, no, I'm a banjo player who likes to write songs occasionally. And you were able to do some, like, it just seemed like there was a lot of creative projects going on around that time that you were at the college. But you did some like interesting interdisciplinary collabs, I remember, with dancers and other multidisciplinary artists. Did that kind of help you spark that creativity to start composing more? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. So a little background is they started this string band program, which wasn't necessarily a credited program. Like they didn't have a music major, but they had like a couple classes that you could take in string band music. And they also had like a clogging class, like a percussive dance class that was specific to like Appalachian dance. And out of that class, they actually introduced an entire dance program. It's called like a vernacular dance program. So uh, swing dance, tap, traditional Quebecois dance, you know, like Appalachian stuff. So there are a bunch of dancers who are incredible who came down and followed the musicians down to this college. And so it was through that that we started having these mini collaborations. And we were all like in our late teens and early 20s. And it was kind of cool because we were into this like really niche kind of music. But the dancers had this entirely other language for like swing music and jazz and tap. And so it was just really cool to collaborate with them. And yeah, I think the program provided this kind of safety for me to say to people like, oh, I'm studying string band music. But then there were these pockets where I could have some creativity and where there was room for me to write songs and it was fully embraced you know, and so I think it was like a nice little cocoon for me to like spread my little wings and try stuff out. And and then I would go home for the summers and waitress again and make records. It was this like nice kind of balance for me, even though looking back, I was just busy all the time. But it was like a little incubator, you know. And then at the end in 2016, when I finished college and graduated, I put out Nine Pin, which was my second album, but it was the one that I actually toured with. Incredible album, Nine Pin. Let's talk a little bit about when you started recording your own music and what that was like for you. So I know that you, you know, you do a lot of collaboration with like producers and other artists. When you were making Nine Pin, was there like, was there a concept to it? You know, did you kind of go in with an idea of the album you wanted to make or was it more of an organic process? I have been working with a guy named Chris Bartosh, who's an incredible producer and musician. He plays the five-string fiddle. He's very good at electric guitar. And I first met Chris, we basically jammed on fiddle and banjo, like at a festival. And what struck me about Chris is, you know, he was like 20, maybe 30 years older than me. 
but he always treated me like an equal. And I've noticed that like as a pattern with people or mentors who I've really gotten along with like Mitch or Chris is that they meet you where you're at and there's like no talking down to you, which as a young woman, like, you know that, you know, when you're learning an instrument, it can be very common to have people treat you poorly or even if you're not um, just living your life mm-hmm. so I collaborated with Chris on my first album Sorrowbound and then again on Nine Pin and I told Chris I said like I'm playing hours of string band music in West Virginia I don't want to make a string band record like I'm already doing that I'm already playing with like fiddle and bass and like rhythm guitar like I just don't want to do that and he was like say no more And so we went into the studio. I only had money for one day in the studio in Toronto. This was at Canterbury Studios. And it was like $1,000 a day, which seemed just mind-blowing to me. And Chris is like, he's a bit of a funny duck. And this was my winter vacation from school. This is like winter 2015. And he's like, all right, we have to wait until like the phases of the moon line up. We have to just like practice with the band and then wait and like pick the day. And so he like, he really like, I don't know, something about it. I think this is something that Neil Young did anyway. And so I was like, okay, whatever. You know, I was 23 and I was like, had a million other things to do. And we picked the day. We went into the studio with the band. The band was Brian Kobayakawa on bass, Chris on like five string fiddle and Caleb Hamilton on trumpet. And like Rakesh Tiwari played a few drum things, but it was like very much like not a string band thing, you know? And so we did that and like miraculously, I think I did like nine or 10 songs in one studio day, which right now seems like, what the hell were we thinking? Like, I was like, I need Chris's moon calendar. (laughs) That's incredible. Me too. And then we brought in some folks for overdubs. I know you sang on a Shape Note song that I was doing and, and just like a lot of friends and favors and kindnesses. And then it somehow... It just took off. People really liked that approach, um, which I was surprised. But I just had a lot of amazing people in my corner, including Devin Leger, who's a publicist, who, you know, at Folk Alliance, I was playing those tunes right before I graduated. And that's where I got my first publicist, Devin. And that's where I got my first booking agent was at Folk Alliance in 2016. And so that, that's how it all took off. And ever since then, I've, I've been doing things a little sideways as a banjo player. Hello, this is Rosalind from Folk Music Ontario, and I'm hopping in here to invite all of our Refocus listeners to join us for a special webinar series taking place every Wednesday in March as part of our Expert Ready program in partnership with Folk Music Canada. We'll be talking to experts in international touring about how to access audiences and stages across the globe and develop those markets into sustainable career opportunities. Listeners can RSVP for free by heading to folkmusicontario.org slash events. We hope to see you there. The album, which again, I will just keep saying is incredible as the rest of your body of work, but it kind of, and correct me if I'm wrong, that kind of ushered in like the next phase of your music career. Cause then you started like really kind of hitting the road, right? Yeah, I did. And that was a shock because I had seen you tour, like I had seen my friends who were older than me tour. And so I knew people and musicians who had toured and I, who I could ask advice, but you don't really know what it's like until you just get out on the road and kind of do it. And it was like, it felt like such a cold water plunge from the safety and the predictability of like my classes and my degree. So yeah, 2016 and 2018 was like 
like I went to the UK, I was touring in the States, I was like touring a little bit in Canada. Had zero boundaries or knowledge <laughs> of like when I should not work and turn off my computer. You know, my anxiety was like totally climbing, but I didn't even know what anxiety was. Like I was like, oh, I don't have anxiety, but I definitely had anxiety. <laughs> and just like really kind of, to be honest, like going into debt, really for the first five years of my career from 2016, I like went into a lot of debt with this promise that things would sort of eventually even out and I would start to get SOCAN royalties and stuff. But like looking back, it was just complete chaos. Saying yes to like every gig, didn't know that I could say no to anything. Yeah. That's so interesting. Can we talk about this for a little bit? Because as someone who also struggles with boundaries and the anxiety that goes along with not having them, burnout is on the horizon when you're starring that hard, you know? A lot of people had to kind of take that pause during the pandemic. But you kind of, you said that, you know, your hard road time was kind of until 2018. Was there something that happened in 2018 that made you pause and go like, maybe I can change the way that I'm doing things here? Yeah, for sure. So I've been going, 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 no knowledge or understanding of like we were talking about what a boundary is. No understanding that I could say no and it would be okay, you know, and just a ton of heaping pressure on myself. And then also other people looking at me and saying like, you're successful, you're successful. And I was like, you should see my credit cards. But like, (laughs) I guess I'm successful. And I was touring in the UK with my partner, Andrew, who he's a bass player and he toured with me for a really long time. We tour less together now. But yeah, we were like in the thick of that. And I was in the UK And after every show, I would just berate myself. Like, it was getting bad. It was like, I wanted to be perfect. And I wanted to have this, because, I mean, I think that's the other side of growing up around so many songwriters and so many, like, incredible musicians is I knew where I wanted to be. And I just wanted to get there. And I had no understanding that, like, it takes time, a really long time to hone your craft And sometimes you're just young and green and like, that's okay. And people love to see young people performing, even if you're not a prodigy or if it's not perfect. And so I was on stage. I'd been totally wiped out. I'd been touring like nonstop. And I was on stage and I was performing a song and I felt this weird sensation come up. Like my head felt hot and my body felt really bizarre. And what I later know is that like, that was a panic attack But when it was happening to me on stage, I thought I was dying. Like, I was like, this is my last moment. Like, might as well go out, like, in style. Like, (laughs) on a festival stage, like, all right, this is what's happening. Like, I'm dying. And so that ended, and I was like, what the fuck was that? And that was, like, the point where my body was just, like, really trying to communicate with me that, like, it wasn't okay. Because my mind was, like, not picking it up at all, cognitively, consciously. And so... It was like a long path after that to just being like, holy shit, I need to back off. Like, I need to really take my foot off the gas. I need to communicate with my entire team that I'm only human and I can only do so much, you know, and I need to go to freaking therapy. Like, I need to go to therapy. And so, yeah, so that was 2018 when I just, I was like, okay, maybe I can only do three weeks on the road at most you know, before I start to sort of lose it. And you know what? Turns out that like most musicians on the road have like a limit to what they can do. And they, you know, you don't want to be on the road for a month because it freaking destroys your body and your mind. Yeah. You brought up like the idea of like the perception of 
success. And what I find that really interesting as a conversation because it's like success and being like too busy <laughs> or being like burn, you know, on the burnout trajectory, you know, sometimes just look exactly the same. Or we have yeah. this idea of like, you know, success means that you're busy all the time and you're working all the time and you're gigging all the time and you're presenting that stuff is happening. Don't worry. I'm not resting. Stuff is always happening. It's a lot of pressure. And certainly like social media added to that a billion times. Were you able to, when you realized that, okay, some things, some things amiss here, some things up, I got to make some changes. How were you able to kind of roll with that pressure that's still there, but mm-hmm. whilst taking care of yourself? Yeah. Well, so- something I started doing, I realized And this may seem very obvious to listeners, and I apologize, but I realized that because I have an irregular schedule, often I'll work weekends. And then what I used to do is get home on like Monday or Tuesday and just be like, oh my God, it's the work week. I have to work. And what I didn't realize is like, no, I just, I just had my work week. And so these like frames of like capitalism in like weeks and weekends and feeling like if you're not productive during the week, then something's wrong. And so this woman named Beth Pickens, she works with artists and she works with boundaries within the art that you create in like non-traditional careers. And she talks about how you should take two days, but if you can't take two days, take one day where you don't do anything that's related to monetizing. So like my songwriting is actually related to like monetizing. And so I can take a day or two days off songwriting. Maybe I learn to play the bass. And that's completely different than something that I would ever monetize. Or like an email, answering an email is related to like monetizing something. Mm -hmm. And so having that framework, I always thought it was like, well, if I'm not playing music, then I'm taking a day off. But like, then I'm answering emails related to my career. And so that really helped me form this idea that I need a weekend too, you know, and I need like a couple days off answering emails too, even if my weekend is like Wednesday, Thursday or Monday, Tuesday. That has been hard to stick with, but it was really helpful as a framework to understanding like what we do as artists, which is like in French, they call it like éparpillé, like it's really spread apart. Like even giving a lesson, you're not, you're not taking it out, you know, like, cause that's related to monetizing something. That's amazing advice. And just like acknowledging where our workplaces are, you know, I remember the first time I ever went to therapy and speaking to the therapist, talking about a situation that happened. And then, you know, my my colleague said this, but it was, you know, 2 a.m. at this venue. And then she's like, why are you working at 2 a.m.? I was like, whoa, there's a lot you don't understand. You know, why is your your boss calling you at 1 a.m. on a weekend? It's like, well, great question. But, you know, it's because we're doing events and we're putting on showcases that go until 3 a.m. at conferences. And there's, you know, there's a whole world of work that exists in uncommon, unconventional to the general world of work places. And it's, yeah, I think for a lot of folks working, you know, not just as artists, but in the music industry, it can be hard to recognize when you're putting in those hours, even if it's in something that's a little, maybe it's fun. Oh my gosh, maybe you're having fun. (laughs) I don't know, maybe. But yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And awesome that you got to work with somebody in the mental health space that understands being an an artist and what that's like, or like just the kind of working in the creative space. Yeah, absolutely. I hear what you're saying about like, you know, saying you're working until 2am and having people like wide eyed and being like, what? Like, 
<laughs> no, it's you cool. Should. I like it. Yeah, exactly. But like, also, it's killing me. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's such a fine line because, yeah, when you were talking about hours too, I had two babies recently ish. And, you know, that meant as a, you know, person who's working an industry job, but in like an arts organization space, which can be typically like a nine to five space, I was up all night. I'm still up all night with like, Mm-hmm. With kids, and during the day, sometimes I'm like, you know, just staring at a screen, be like, I can't. My brain yeah. is not in that function zone. But for some reason, at like 9 30 p.m., it's like, that's the sweet spot. And I'm like, boo, 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 boo. now I can answer all the emails and do all the reports I had to do. And been on a bit of my own journey there of being like, and that's okay. This seems like it's crossing a boundary, but it's actually not. It's working with my schedule in my life and what makes sense for my own physical and mental health at the moment where I'm at this stage. But to the outside person, you know, they're getting an email from me at like 10 p.m. and they're like, Rosalind, stop. (laughs) Why are you still working at 10 p.m.? They think like, yeah, you've been like just toiling away on that keyboard (laughs) for like 12 hours, which you haven't. I completely I mean, sometimes I have, but in in this specific scenario, I haven't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, working non-traditional hours, it's really a different thing, you know, like I think Corey and Raymond said, it's the job of the night people to take the money from the day people. And like, it's the job of the day people like work all day to give their money to the night people. And it's this like little like economy that we have. And then the night people like then go buy groceries and give them to the day people. And it's like, it's circular. (laughs) I like that. I really like that. So then after this, going back to 2018, there's this shift in where your head's at in terms of like touring and being on the road all the time. Is that when you started getting into composing for film? Were those two things kind of, did those happen around the same time? Was that correlated? Yeah, it was actually the start of that because I was part of this group. It used to be called Toronto Women in Music or something. And now it has a different name. It's more inclusive. It's not just like aiming at like cis women. Mm-hmm. But basically there was this artist named Laura Dickens who was just a great, great electronic music artist. And they said they were like, well, why don't I just like give some lessons for free on Ableton, which is like a music production software to people who have often felt like excluded in production spaces. And so Laura was like, yeah, I'll offer it. And I just happened to live like two blocks away from Laura in Toronto and they were offering the lessons at their house. And so I I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to go. And I downloaded like the little Ableton free trial 30 day thing. And Laura basically walked like a group of us through how to use Ableton. And this was 2018. And it like opened up a new world for me. I had been working in garage band and just feeling generally like in my previous albums, feeling like it was really hard to articulate what I wanted. And Chris was really good. And he listened to me and it was like totally symbiotic. But I was like, I want to get better at like just doing something myself. Or if I have an idea, just putting it down exactly the way that I want to hear it. And so that started my journey in Ableton and like music production. And I went to a SoCan Foundation run program in 2020 that's called Production X Equity Program, which we can put in the show notes. I'll send a link. And it basically you can apply if, you know, you're part of a marginalized background and you want to 
learn Ableton for a week. And so that was the next course I went and did. And actually, Laura was one of the co-teachers in that. And it was like a group of us. It felt really safe and like cool to ask questions and to like show each other what we were doing or to help each other out. And so those sort of like collaborative initiatives that were happening in Toronto around that time gave me enough confidence to start recording my own music or including some production stuff in my live stuff, in my live shows, which then gave me the confidence to apply for this film program, this composing program, because I was like, oh yeah, I know how to record stuff and, you know, build a synth or whatever it is. And the program you're talking about is the program at the Canadian Film Centre, correct? That's right, yeah. Maybe talk a little bit, let people know about what that program is like and and what that experience was like for you. The Canadian Film Centre has a program called the Slate Family Music Lab, which takes three songwriters and three composers. I think they're referencing like instrumental-leaning composers And it's a six-month program. It's a bursaried program, so you get paid to participate. There's no fee to participate. And they take you. It's a part-time program, so usually they have an intensive right at the beginning, and then it sort of tapers off. But they take you through the fundamentals and basics of composing, what a cue is, how a TV show would typically run. And then they give you these case studies where you get a particular kind of like film or like a scene, and you work with a mentor in learning how to score, let's say, a romantic comedy, or a drama, or a horror film. And each unit has its different sort of genre, and you go through it, and you can send feedback back to your mentor. There's like a couple of drafts that you do. And yeah, and so it just sort of takes you through the whole thing, and then at the end, your final project is you get to come up with a concept for a short film, And they find a director and a writer and producers and actors to build that reality, like build that into a film, your idea, and then you get to score it. And you don't have any sort of feedback from any... It's your project, so you get to decide like the artistic vision, whereas there are some you know, projects in the program where you're put with a director or a writer and you get to experience them giving you feedback. It's really comprehensive and like, kind of amazing um, because you get to sort of fail in these like really safe environments versus being on a really high stakes film production where you got to know what you're doing. So that sounds amazing. So coming out of that program, then how did you start to enter into doing, doing that professionally? Was the Porter your first gig doing that kind of work or did you have some other work leading up to that? I'd done some work on some short documentaries. I I have a couple of friends in West Virginia who have a production company, and they really liked my music. And when they found out that I was doing film composing, they were like, oh, you know, why don't you try out this short documentary or this or that? So that was mostly my realm. And then a woman named Kaya Pino, who works at a music supervision company called The Wilders, she got in touch because they were working on The Porter, and she knew my music and... We had met a year prior to me doing the program and I said, what can I do to like write for film? And she was like, do more of it, do some exercises, get better. And so I think she saw that I was like really trying to go in that direction. And so she suggested my name as a songwriter on the show. And I don't know if folks really know a ton about it, but it's the biggest Black-led TV series in Canadian history. And, you know, the directors and producers were willing to take a shot on me, but they offered me like one scene and they had very specific ideas about, you know, how do you write for this character? 
And they were like, we don't want something shawarmi. We don't want her to be like longing. We want her to be like, you know, the scene was that she was auditioning and she needed to like sing something that caught people's attention. And then I had, it was like a four day turnaround. It was like, all right, write it like now. And so I had to come up with a melody and a demo and then I sent it to them and they ended up really liking it, which was amazing because after that they would like come back with more scenes and projects for me but originally it was just this one scene and it sort of felt like the character was auditioning but I was also auditioning (laughs) for this role as a songwriter on this series so it was very meta that's very cool yeah I've got to see some clips of your work there and it's so amazing it's really exciting to see someone performing something and be like oh I know who wrote that and to like have a little glimpse inside of the process of how that the magic is made so what advice would you give then to somebody, an artist who is interested in getting into composing and, you know, where would someone start? Well, my first piece of advice would be to get comfortable on some kind of software. So it, that can be Logic, Pro Tools, Digital Performer, Ableton. Get off GarageBand. If you've been using GarageBand, try something else. A lot of people I know go to Logic because it's a Mac program and a lot of the shortcuts feel more natural than Pro Tools. Uh, Ableton's also a great music creation software. So if you're kind of looking to do multiple things as like a songwriter and a composer, Ableton can be good for that. Get yourself used to that first. Try recording yourself. Apply for that SoCan program. If you're part of a marginalized background, that can be really helpful because there's like a framework for learning Ableton. And then don't be afraid to, you know, put out a thing and say, hey, I'm looking to get into film composing Because I think there are people in in your immediate network who might be directors and who might not have a huge budget for somebody to compose. And so maybe you offer to do a couple things for free just to see how it feels and see if you even like it. And then keep putting out records. Those are really good for this Canadian Film Center program. I'll just quote from them what it takes to apply. So they say, To apply, songwriters must have written songs that have been placed in film, television series, web series, commercials, video games, theater, and or released by a record label or have a publishing contract. Hmm. So most musicians I know already have a label, even if they're on their own label. So you can really get into this program just off the stuff that you've written yourself. And then, you know, do a little bit of both, like try writing a song for a film, try composing for a film and see what you like better. Like it turns out that I vastly prefer songwriting for film than composing for film. I find Mm. composing to be like a little bit long and tedious sometimes. Mm. And with composing, you work sort of inside of your own box. And as a performer, I really ended up missing being in front of people. And so with songwriting contracts, it's really nice because I get to write a song for a film, but then that's done. And then I get to go perform. So it's really about figuring out, you know, what do you want your life to look like in 10 years? Do you want to be mostly at home? Do you actually really like being on the road? I think those things will determine what kind of path that you take, but you always have a path forward. And I think songwriters, especially, we have way more skills than we give ourselves credit for. And so I think that switch into songwriting for TV or composing for TV is not as much of a daunting jump as you would think it is. And so that's what I would love to leave people with is like, if you're interested in this, you can do it. It's totally achievable. That's incredible advice. And I love the space that's left there for creating your own balance. You know, it's been so wonderful to 
chat with you, Kaya. Thank you so much. Before we wrap up, though, can you tell us a little bit about what's the next thing that you got going on? The next thing is I have an album tentatively called Strange Medicine that will be out hopefully in the fall of 2023. It's 10 songs, all written by me and maybe a more personal album than I've ever put out. So I'm excited to release that and then tour it. And where can people go to find out all of your stuff? Everything Kaya. You can go to my website, which is www.kayacater.com. And I'm at Kaya Cater on all the social media sites like TikTok and Instagram and Facebook. So you can connect with me there. You can also sign up for my email list if you're curious about you know keeping in touch and maybe coming to a show and then if anyone wants to just drop me a line who's more curious about learning about film composing you can do that through my website just type in the contact submission box and then it'll be sent to me and we can talk that's so generous kaya thank you so much i definitely recommend checking out your incredible catalog of work which we didn't even we didn't even touch on grenades (laughs) kaya has just a really amazing body of recorded work that's out there so i really encourage folks to go check it out wherever you wherever you listen to music and we'll link it in the show notes there thank you so much kaya thank you rosalyn that's it for this episode of refocus please subscribe rate and review on the podcast app of your choice so you never miss an episode For more information, you can visit us at folkmusicontario.org and follow us on social media at Folk Music Ontario. This refocus session is brought to you through the generous support of the Department of Canadian Heritage. (laughs) 